Good evening, everybody. This is the final lecture for Church History Part 1. And so we will finish. We will be right up to the year 1500, and then uh, I don't know when I'll do Church History 2. But uh, just wanted to uh, make sure that we, we got this one in. So that being said, last time um, I finished the Eastern Church, and then I moved to this lesson that we're on now, where uh, we're pretty much, uh, I moved to the lesson that we're on now, where pretty much um, I'm talking about dissenters. So there have always been dissenters of the institutional church. Uh, and, and so last time I talked about the heretical dissenting groups. There were heretics, and usually they were Gnostics. It was Gnosticism uh, rebranded. But now, what I want to do for this final lesson, because again, this ends the church history class, um, this final lesson, I'm going to focus on the dissenting groups that were not heretical. In fact, they paved the way for the Protestant Reformation. And I think you're going to be very surprised at what these groups believed and how they really uh, did pave the way for the uh, Protestant Reformation. So in review, just last time, I talked about um, the Paulicians in the East, and then the Bogomils, they were a Gnostic cult. And then the Bogomils spread their ideas to the West, and you had the Cathars, which were the most widespread dissenting group. And these were heretics that believed, again, matter's evil, uh, spirit's good, Satan and Jesus are brothers, and, uh, you know, Satan rebelled against God, all, all that kind of stuff I talked about. And among the Cathars, they had uh, various subgroups, and one of the bigger ones in southern France was called the Albigensians, and they were actually wiped out when Pope Innocent III used a crusade against them. So that was the last thing we talked about. So as I said, now we're going to move into um, Orthodox people, people who were Orthodox um, but were dissenters and are also going to be persecuted by the Western Church. So the first group is called the Petrobrusians. And I know these names always sound pretty, uh, pretty funny, but they make sense when you understand where these names come from. Okay, So again, we're talking about dissenting movements that are not heretical now. They were persecuted for one reason and one reason alone. They rejected the claims of the papacy, and they rejected all these extra-biblical Roman Catholic doctrines that we have now been talking about for many weeks. Those were doctrines held dear by the institutional church, and so because these guys reject them on, biblical, on a biblical basis, they're going to be seen as a threat to the church. And so, as I said, uh, the first of the group is the Petrobrusians. They're named after their founder, uh, Peter de Bries. You know, um, I looked up how to say it in, in French, Peter de Bries. Otherwise, I'd be like, yes. But anyway, uh, Peter, de, Peter de Bries, he was a Catholic priest. Okay, so he was part of the clergy. And he started a reform movement in 1105. So that lets us know exactly uh, what century we're talking about. This is the beginning of the 12th century. Now, the church will eventually declare his movement heretical, uh, and the authorities will pretty much burn him at the stake in the year 1126. So he will die, I think, as a martyr. Uh, I think it's fair to call him that. And then after he dies, the movement gets taken over by one of his disciples, a man named Henry of uh, Lausanne. He was a Benedictine monk. So again, these were both clergy, but they start looking at the scriptures and they realize that what the church is pushing just is not biblical. 
So, um, you know, we know what Peter de Bries believed in Henry of Lausanne because of a Catholic polemical work. One of the, uh, it was the abbot of Cluny. And remember, that was the, the, the big monastery that was uh, behind a lot of the reforms of this time. The head of that monastery wrote a refutation of the Petrobrusians. And based on what he's saying they got wrong, that lets you know what they believed. And so here's the thing. Here's what we learned. The Petrobrusians denied infant baptism. They said it's not biblical. Only believers get baptized. Uh, they denied the holiness of church buildings and altars. They're like, these are just objects. They're made out of stone. That's not what's, what's holy. They also uh, refused to venerate the sign of the cross. Uh, Peter de Bries actually uh, would destroy crosses because he thought people were turning them into idols. You know, just like in the early church, there was the debate about relics. Some people said, these are idols. Well, he's saying the, the same thing. They denied the doctrine of transubstantiation, and they also said that the Mass is not a sacrifice. Christ is not present as a sacrifice when you take the Lord's Supper. He died on the cross once and for all, and that's something we as Protestants say all the time. Uh, they also, he, he also denied that, the, that prayers and good works done on earth can help those who've already died. Now think about it. That's a shot at indulgences. I can't just give the church money to help my dead relatives out of purgatory. I can't go fight a crusade for the Pope because this is when the crusades were going on. Okay, we're talking about the 1100s. I can't just go fight a crusade and somehow think it's going to affect what happened to my loved ones who are dead. The Bible doesn't say anything like that. In addition to these things, they also, he also said, look, there's nothing in the Bible that talks about the celibacy of the clergy. In fact, there's supposed to be a husband of one wife. Why are you denying them uh, the, the right to, to marry? Um, and then now one thing that's kind of weird is they also rejected the idea of singing. Singing's not worship. Why are you introducing singing? Which they're wrong on that. Obviously, we're commanded to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. In the Old Testament, definitely the whole book of Psalms shows that songs is a form of worship. But clearly, if you look at everything else, this group of dissenters, they were like Baptists. They had a lot in common, not just with later Protestants, but specifically Baptists. Now, why haven't you heard of them? They did not survive the execution of Peter. Peter de Bries, again, burned at the stake. And then his disciple, Henry, who tried to take the movement, he was imprisoned. And it was a harsh imprisonment, and he died. So after that, their followers dispersed. You know, you strike the shepherd, the sheep scatter. They dispersed, and a lot of them will join other dissenting groups, groups that we have heard about, right? Now, since Peter was burned at the stake, I think it's important to understand the motivation behind this. I was also talking about witches a few lessons ago and how witches were being burned. And so you might be wondering, whoever came up with that? Like, why not just cut their heads off or throw them off a cliff? Like, why bundle all this wood together and set them on fire alive as a big spectacle? Well, it was declared to be an act of faith and worship by the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, and, and so the idea, the rationale was, look, heretics go to hell. So isn't it fitting to send them into the next life, like make them leave this life in the same way they're going to enter the next life? If that life is fire, let's send them out of this world with fire. It almost seems uh, spiteful, spiteful rather than, than, than being uh, just.
Now, the church had no right to burn people at the stake. Okay, this wasn't the church that did it. Only only Caesar has the sword. But here's the thing. Caesar, it was in their best interest to do what the Catholic Church said. So most of the time, when a bishop said this person should be burned, they would be burned. It's just, just, just the way it worked. They would end up being burned. And so the execution of the heretic was thought to be an act of worship that pleased God. And if I'm a a magistrate, I want to please God. So I'm trusting the church got it right. And and they're telling me that this is an act of worship that God will respect. They're the theologians, not I. So I will comply and burn these people. That's that's how it worked. That's how that's how it worked. So that quickly talks about the Petrobrusians, the next group, a lot more significant, and, uh, and it's the Waldensians. And if you've never heard of them, well, now you're going to hear of them, and hopefully you won't forget about them. Uh, the Waldensians is a lot more important because they were really, truly Protestants before the Reformation, and they're still around today. You'll find Waldensian churches in the world still today. Now, they were founded by a wealthy French merchant, named Valdez, um, or, you know, the way it could be pronounced in some languages is Waldez, and that's why we call it the Waldensians. Now, later traditions, we don't know how reliable they are, say his first name was Peter and his last name was Waldo. So Peter Waldo, but I think it's better just to say, no, Valdez was his name. He was born in, we don't know when he was born, but we know when he died. He died in the year 1205. Sometime between 1173 and 1176, as a wealthy man, he hears a sermon where he he hears about Christ's command given to the rich young ruler. What must I do to be saved? Well, keep the commandments. And I have since I was young. Okay, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. But then the guy wouldn't, walked away sad. And Jesus said, easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And that impacted young Valdez. And so he sold everything he had. Sold everything he had. He gave it to the poor. And then he said, I will live the rest of my life as a lay preacher. He was not a priest. He was not trained theologically, but he read the Bible. He could read. He was wealthy. And he went around teaching. And then like the monks were doing during this time, he, uh, uh, he begged. You know, He's like, well, if you could donate food, clothing, and money, that would help. Eventually, he gets a band of followers who agree with him. They were from Lyons, and they uh, attached themselves to him, and so they were nicknamed the Poor Men of Lyon. Now, the Archbishop of Lyon, and it's interesting because the famous church father Irenaeus came from there, but anyhow, we're much after the time of Irenaeus. This Archbishop of Lyon heavily opposed them. Why? Because, and by the way, they weren't preaching against the church yet. It's just the Catholic Church said only clergy could preach. Lay people have no right to preach. It's only for the priest to preach. It didn't matter if they're preaching what's true. It didn't matter if they're making people more faithful Catholics. They're like, nope, you have no right to do this. And so what happened is Valdez, he appealed to the Third Lateran Council in 1179, and he appealed to Pope Alexander III. 
Now, uh, Alexander III, I don't know if you remember him. I mentioned him uh, when I was talking about the, the peak of papal power. He's the one that humbled King Henry of England after uh, Thomas Becket was killed um, and, and made this guy publicly repent and, and all that. So he was one of those popes that really pushed uh, the crowns under his feet. That being said, this pope, Alexander III, rejected Valdez's appeal. He's like, no, you cannot preach. You're a lay person. Tell you what, you can preach if your bishop gives you permission. Since your bishop hasn't given you permission, you are to cease and desist. But the Pope did say, but I do give you kudos on your devotion to poverty because that's what real monks do. And so, you know, good thing that that you do that. But that's it. You, You can't preach. Cease and desist. Well, Valdez is like, no, that's not right. So he and his poor men refuse to give up preaching. And they go around and they're still teaching the word. So the archbishop excommunicates them in 1182 and then expels them from Lyon. So they're kicked out of Lyon. And so where they're going to move is to Languedoc, which is in, it's in the southeastern coastland of France. And some of them will move to Lombardy as well in northern Italy. Now, it's interesting. Both these regions are where the heretical Cathars were successful. Because remember, the French nobility during this time was against the Pope and against the northern nobility. And so because of that, they gave protection to anybody who dissented against the church. They didn't care if they were heretics or not. So for a time, it was safe for these guys to be in Languedoc, and they will grow there. Now, in 1184, Pope Lucius III, his Pope dates, 1181 to 1185, he excommunicated all Waldensians. He's like, all right, these guys are out. They are excommunicated. You can't give them any sacraments. They deserve to go to hell. So they're forced out of the Catholic Church against their wishes. I want you to think about that because Martin Luther never wanted to be out of the Catholic Church, but he too was excommunicated. Um, So if you get kicked out, but you're convinced that the Bible says one thing, but the institutional church is saying something else, well then... Eventually you say, well, I don't think I need them then. You know, let, let, it's, let's just see what Christ has to say. So they start thinking afresh. They're like, well, if we're not part of the Catholic Church, we don't have to take for granted the doctrines of the Catholic Church. We could test everything by Scripture. And that's what they did. They determined that the Bible, especially the New Testament, should be the supreme rule of all Christian belief and practice. What does that sound like to you? Sola Scriptura. But it's Sola Scriptura 400 years before the Protestant reformers coined that phrase. But it's the exact same principle. This is the, this is the 1100s, not the 1500s. And they're saying, nope, the Bible is the final rule. It's the final test of belief and practice. And so once they lean on the Bible as their authority, they quickly realize a lot of Catholic doctrine is unbiblical. So one thing they reject is the authority and infallibility of the papacy. They're like, we don't see any popes in Scripture. They then rejected transubstantiation. They said purgatory. You don't find that anywhere in the Scripture. Prayers for the dead. What in the world are you guys thinking? And indulgences. This is the height of corruption. You can't pay to get somebody out of judgment after they're dead, and there is no purgatory, so no point for indulgences. Now, one thing that was still kind of Catholic-like is they did venerate Mary for a time, but eventually Waldensians would stop doing that as well. And then they said, you know what? The way that you get people to know the truth about Jesus is you have to translate the Bible into the language of the people. They don't speak Latin. Let's bring it to them in French. Let's bring it to them in Italian. And so 
that is something that could be punishable by, by death. Um, they partook of the Lord's Supper on their own. If a Catholic priest won't give it to me because I'm excommunicated, I don't need them to give it to me. We could take the Lord's Supper on our own. Then what these guys did is they started creating schools to train preachers, and they trained both men and women as evangelists. They're like, you know, in the scriptures, women preach the gospel. They're not pastors. They don't teach men in the church, but who were the first people to announce the resurrected Christ? It was a woman. He sent Mary, Mary Magdalene. So we could teach women to be evangelists of the lost, both men and women. Now, they rejected uh, oaths based on the Sermon on the Mount. I think that's a misreading of it. They also rejected military service, but they were not pacifists. When the Catholic Church tries to hunt them down, they did believe in organized self-defense, and that's one reason they were not wiped out. Um, they spread out from their original home homelands of Languedoc and Lombardy to Spain, Austria, East Germany. They became the second biggest or most widespread dissenting group in Western Europe. Sadly, the Cathars, those heretics, were the first, but the second biggest group was this very orthodox group called the Waldensians. Now, the interesting thing is a lot of Catholics and like Catholic nobility sympathized with these guys. They're like, these are not bad guys. Like Cathars, you could tell. But the Waldensians, a lot of Catholics are like, look, they're just trying to preach the word in our own language and, and trying to follow the Bible. And we all agree the Bible is the word of God. So a lot of Catholics will actually give money to their schools. They're going to be like, let's give them some money so they could train even more preachers. Um, but those Catholics that supported them still remained part of the Catholic Church. So they were not like full, they didn't become Waldensians. They stayed Catholics, but they liked what the Waldensians did, and so they supported them. So clearly, in many ways, in many ways, um, the Waldensians were Protestants before there were Protestants, 400 years before there were Protestants. Um, now, a lot of them were killed. Remember when I said Pope Innocent III announced a crusade against the Languedoc region of France to kill the Cathars? At the same time they killed the Cathars, they killed the Waldensians because uh, the, the crusaders, they couldn't tell one dissenting group from another. So they killed heretics as well as righteous people. Um, and so you're, you're going to have a, a lot of them die. And then after that crusade's over, they're going to be hunted down everywhere they go because of something called the Inquisition. And I'm going to talk all about the Inquisition uh, in, in a moment. Now, the Waldensians did survive in northern Italy because in northern Italy, they were in the Alps and you could uh, defend yourselves in the Alps. There's only so many ways enemy armies could come in. So they did coordinate armed defenses and they stopped themselves from being wiped out, mainly in that area. But in a lot of other areas, they were actually wiped out. Now, you fast forward, because again, their beliefs were almost identical to Protestantism 400 years in advance. So when the 1500s come, when the 16th century comes, and the Protestant Reformation starts and spreads throughout all of Europe, these guys join it. You know, when the Protestant missionaries go to them, they're like, wait a second, look, we have written creeds 400 years old that are saying everything you believe. They're like, wow. So here you are. Here were real Christians in Europe under the nose of the Catholic Church this whole time. So they actually join uh, the Reformation, and one of their churches in Italy is the oldest Protestant body in the world. Because once they join the Protestant Reformation, you know, it's technically a Protestant church, but it's a church that's been in operation since the 1100s. 
So that's that that's a pretty pretty big deal. And by the way, there's a Waldensian church in North Carolina. So uh, these guys are still around. You could find them today. Today we see no difference between them and regular old Protestants, but they were not uh, heirs of the Protestant Reformation. They did it long before the Reformation when it was a lot harder to pull off. Now, I mentioned this whole Inquisition thing. Where did this come from? Y'all have heard of it. Some of you probably have the song from uh, Mel Brooks' History of the World uh, memorized where they're singing about the Inquisition and making light of it. It is pretty funny, actually, even though it's not a funny thing. But leave it to Mel Brooks to make fun of everything. Uh, But anyhow, what is the Inquisition? Exactly how did it come into being? When did it come into being? Well, remember, Pope Innocent III declared a crusade, not against Muslims, but against people in Europe, when he wiped out the Albigensians in southern France. It succeeded, and he thought about it. Hey, this worked out for me. So he decided to to ask, how could he expand this idea of crusade into something that's not a full-scale war, but is a regular hunting down of heretics? And so he sets up a special system of uh, legates that were personally appointed by him. These guys had the job of seeking out any surviving heretics in France. So it's like we, we killed most of them, but he's like, yeah, but some of them escaped and they're going to carry their ideas with them. So I want people whose job, I appoint them, okay, and then their job is to go out and hunt people to make sure these heresies don't spread. They're called inquisitors. Now, because I am a nerd, uh, this makes me think very much of Star Wars, where once the Jedi are all wiped out by Order 66, then the Empire trains inquisitors to go find the hiding Jedi and kill them. It's exactly from this. This is where George Lucas stole the idea. Um, It's just in a make-believe galaxy far, far away. It's interesting to watch. In real life, this was awful. <laughs> um, so they, they had the job of, of seeking out and finding these heretics. Before Pope Innocent created this group, heresy hunting was the job of the local bishop. And most local bishops didn't do a good job with it. Some bishops might be more sympathetic to this group than other bishops. The Pope wanted this centralized. So instead, he appointed these guys. They answered to him alone. They did not answer to the bishops. The bishops could not tell them what to do. And the bishops could not tell them not to do their job in their lands because they have orders straight from the Pope. And so Innocent dies, and then it's you know, less than 20 years later, um, his system then morphs into an official office called the Office of the Inquisition uh, in 1227. Uh, 1227. And so pretty much it was a holy office that was a separate organization within the Catholic Church. And uh, as I already mentioned, free from bishop control, only subject to the papacy. And they were solely dedicated to uncovering and punishing heretics in Catholic Europe. It will develop into the most feared organization in the Middle Ages. And it's going to be in effect well through the Reformation. It's going to be one of the main agencies the church uses at first to try to kill the reformers. So the Inquisition is it's a, it's a pretty bad thing, and, and they killed thousands throughout the course of, of history from the 1200s when they were founded until when they stopped doing what they do. If you were accused of heresy, it was impossible for you to prove your innocence. 
you know, you were guilty till proven innocent, not innocent till proven guilty. Um, so really, you only had one option if you want to live. Just confess it. Even if it's not true, confess the heresy, and then they'll give you a fine, or they might send you on a pilgrimage. Go to Jerusalem, you know, kiss the foot of the cross, you know, and then come back and, and you'll be okay. But those who refused, those who said, no, I'm not going to confess either A, because this isn't a heresy, or B, somebody's lying about me, well, they would be punished. And depending on the seriousness of the heresy, they could take all your property. And by the way, this now incentivized your enemies spreading the rumor that you're a heretic, because again, you can't prove you're innocent. And if you say, I refuse, then they're like, all right, your property's confiscated. And sometimes a cut of it would go to the one who accused you. So again, this, this it becomes a, a corrupt system. Now, that's the lightest punishment, losing your property. You could be imprisoned for life. Uh, and the worst offenders were handed over to secular authorities to be burned at the stake, which I, I just got done talking about why they burn people at the stake. Um, and so because the Inquisition existed, because it had authority to do this, uh, it forced the dissenting groups like the Waldensians to start meeting in secret, except in the communities that they could defend because of mountains and stuff like that. But if you're in an area where you can't defend yourself from the secular authorities that are sent to get you by these inquisitors, then you've got to meet in secret. It forces a lot of these groups to go underground. The Holy Office of the Inquisition was also going to be used to destroy Jews, which is interesting because Judaism is not a, a heresy within Christianity. It's, a, it's its own religion, and it wasn't treated as heresy. Yeah, they were second-class citizens and stuff like that, and we already talked about anti-Semitism, but that the Inquisition would sometimes say, yeah, we're going to also kill Jews as well. You know, believe in Jesus or die. The Inquisition did that. Um, and then when Protestantism started, they did the same thing to the Protestants. And by the way, one of their most successful methods was torture. You start torturing people, like, tell me where all the other heretics are. It's Johnny, Bobby, Billy, you know, just because you're in pain, you start naming people. And then they start rounding up more uh, so-called heretics. And it just, yeah, it's, it's, it's awful. So that's the Inquisition. Now, what I have left are two more groups, and I'm going to spend a lot more time on these groups because they are the most significant because of their impact. Uh, the, the two evangelical dissenting groups that we know the most about are the Lollards of England and the Hussites or Hussites of Bohemia. And like the Waldensians, they are Protestants before the Reformation. Their beliefs are almost indistinguishable from the Reformers. Now, the reason why I say they have greater significance is because these guys lay the groundwork for the Reformation to be accepted in their respective lands when they finally arrive. And what I mean by that is, as cool as the Waldensians were, they didn't, they didn't actually pave the way for the Reformation. The Reformers had no idea they existed because they weren't hiding. They just, it was like, wow, when they stumbled upon them, wow, this is neat. You know, we got guys who believe what we believe. Whereas these guys they knew about and these guys did pave the way for the Reformation. So again, we'll start with the Lollards. But before I start with the Lollards, i got to start with the founder. And you have probably heard of him, John Wycliffe. It's a name that is familiar. His life dates 1330 to 1384. This is going to all happen during the Babylonian captivity. Remember, the Babylonian captivity in church history is when the papacy moved from Rome 
to Avion, France. And it would now became the puppets of the French king. And it just also happened to be during the Hundred Years' War, where England is at war with France. And yet the popes are always taking France's side, because where are the popes? They're in France. So this is the political background in the time, which is going to explain why Wycliffe is going to be as successful as he, ha he is in England. It's because of what's going on at this time. So a little bit about him. He was the most popular professor of theology at Oxford University in the 1360s. Now, or in the 1360s, he becomes the, a religious advisor to the King of England. So he's high up at this point. He advises Edward III, whose uh, dates 1327 to 1377. And because he had these anti-pope, anti-papal views, he was very useful to the English king and very useful to the nobles because they were opposed to France. They're fighting wars with France. The pope's taking France's side. This guy, the most popular professor at Oxford, their most glorious university is saying, pope is awful, he's wrong on this, 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 and this. And again, the English... The king and the nobles want the people of England to be supporting them in the war against France, even though the pope is saying France is right. Well, if you have a guy who's calling into question the papacy, that's going to help with that. And the fact that the papacy moved from Rome to France, a lot of people's eyebrows are raising at this time, is what I'm saying. So this is the perfect time for somebody like Wycliffe to exist. That's why he does not end up getting killed, um, just, just to let you know. It was politically favorable to him. Um, and as I said, popes were puppets of, the, uh, of the, the French monarch. And so a voice like Wycliffe's was welcome to these uh, political leaders in England. Difference is they opposed the pope not for religious reasons. They opposed the pope for political reasons, whereas Wycliffe, it was all like theological. The pope's wrong. Now, Wycliffe's dissent against the papacy is going to grow over time and get more and more pronounced. You know, it first starts with the idea that because England's fighting France and the Pope's on France's side, um, the Popes are saying, you know, technically England belongs to us. England belongs to the papacy. Why? Because King John I, if you remember, in the previous century, gave all of England to Pope Innocent III when Pope Innocent III uh, excommunicated him and put the whole country under interdict. And so, hey, that happened 100 years ago as popes, we could claim all of England as ours, so you guys better watch out. Where Wycliffe said, hey, king of England, you don't have to listen to him, because God gave political dominion to the state and church dominion or ecclesial dominion to the church. So the pope actually has no claim of political dominion. If he thinks he's the head of the church, the church was not given political power. It wasn't given countries. And so even if John did give it to the pope, doesn't matter. That's not for the Pope to have, so you could ignore this. Furthermore, secular rulers only have the right to their political dominion if they're serving God faithfully, because it's all delegated dominion anyway. And if John gave a churchman a whole country, it's a moot point, because at that point, he's not serving God faithfully. He's giving to the church what God never gave permission to give to the church. And he says the same of, of ecclesial dominion. If bishops and popes are not serving God, if they're not living faithfully, then the state can strip him of his property and his possessions. That's why God has the state, to hold the church accountable. Now think about that. The most valuable land in England with a lot of gold stored up was the church. And the English nobility wanted that land for a long time. And now he's saying, if there's corrupt 
corrupt bishops, you know, the, the state should be able to strip them of their property. So again, he's making a theological argument, but they are, they have a, a political, um, political reason for liking what he's saying. Anyhow, in 1337, uh, because Wycliffe's teaching all this stuff, in 1337, he is summoned to London by its bishop. Okay, the bishops there don't like him. Politicians like him. Nobles like him. The king likes him, but not the bishop. So the bishop of England's big city, London, says, you need to come here. You need to answer for your views. The church was trying to shut him down, but King Edward said, you don't have to go. I'm, I'm, I'm protecting you. So he protected Wycliffe from harm. So then Pope Gregory the 11th, Pope dates 1370 to 1378, he summoned Wycliffe to appear in Rome. You come to Rome within 30 days and you're going to answer for 19 deadly errors. Because the fact is, King of England can't protect you if you're in Rome. Well, Wycliffe refused. He's like, nope, not going. And so King Edward, now, so that's all good for him. But it's going to start to change because King Edward dies. He dies that year, and he's succeeded by his grandson, his grandson. Now, in 1378, the Archbishop of Canterbury, the highest churchman in England, tried to put uh, Wycliffe on trial because King Edward's not allowed to, is not around to protect him anymore. But once he grabbed Wycliffe and was going to put him on trial, a mob of people rescued him from the archbishop. He was a popular hero in England. They liked him more than the highest churchman. You know, they're like, we take Wycliffe over the Archbishop of Canterbury anytime. So this guy couldn't touch him. I kill this guy, the mob's going to come and kill me. So real simple, they had to let Wycliffe go again. So he's this popular hero. He's supported by the nobility. He's almost untouchable. And keep in mind, he was even supported by the lower clergy, like priests. Bishops hated him. But priests and monks liked him because they knew that the guys at the top were corrupt and, and doing all those financial schemes I was talking about a few lessons ago, where the guys on the bottom are like, you know what? He's right. And so you had lower clergy supporting him. You had nobility supporting him. Um, and, and then you may be familiar with the fact that um, you had famous writers like Geoffrey Chaucer writing the Canterbury Tales. Um, those works of this time were describing uh, the church in very unpleasant terms, like they're hypocrites. And, and again, so he's riding, riding this popular wave of what people were saying about the church at, at this time. Now, in 1378, Pope Gregory XI dies, and the Great Schism began. Remember, Gregory was the one that brought the papacy back to Rome. Ended the Babylonian captivity, but that didn't fix anything. If you remember, he dies, and then you have three, three guys all claiming to be the Pope. And this goes on for some time. And remember, this is part of the decline of the papacy, where people are like, you know, the papacy's one big fat joke. And so again, that's why the popes can't kill this guy. They don't have the power to do that, because they're fighting amongst rival popes uh, amongst themselves. So during this time, during the Great Schism, Wycliffe's looking at this. He's saying, you know what, this, this just proves what I've been saying. And so he becomes more radical at this point. And he says what the Waldensians and the Petrobrusians say at this point. He says the Bible alone is the sole source of Christian doctrine, and it alone is used to test church teaching. And we even use the Bible to, teach, to test the church fathers, the papacy, and ecumenical councils. Meaning the Council of Nicaea, as great as it is, we test it by the Bible. If it, if it matches, good. If it doesn't, it doesn't. 
And again, this is sola scriptura. Before the Protestant Reformation ever coined the term, Wycliffe was already teaching it. And of course, before he coined it, the Waldensians were already teaching it. And before the Waldensians taught it, Peter de Bries also taught it. So again, these ideas are starting to, to gain traction. He also argued, like the Waldensians, that the Bible should be translated from Latin into the common language of the people. Now, for this point of the Middle Ages, which is the later Middle Ages, this was radical. The Bible was seen as the book of the clergy, not the book of the people. And only the church has the right to read it and tell you what it means. That sounds suspicious, like they're trying to keep power over people. Whereas Wycliffe is like, no, it has the words of life. And they need to know what it says so that they can look at the church and see if it is actually doing the work of God. So, of course, the, the church looked with great intolerance upon the idea that laypersons should read the Bible for themselves. In fact, some councils declared it illegal to have the Bible in your own language, something punishable by death in the prior century that was decided. Now, why? Well, I think you should be noticing a pattern by now. Haven't you noticed that whenever the dissenting groups actually read the Bible in their own languages, they instantly start rejecting Catholic doctrine? Second, they start reading it in their own language. Wait a second, there's no pope, there's no purgatory, there's no transubstantiation. What is this thing called mass? What is, why are we praying to the dead? All these groups rejected the exact same things. Whether we're talking about the, the Petrobrusians in the, um, the 11th century or the Waldensians in the 12th or the Lollards in the 14th. They're all rejecting the same things. So of course the church is going to say it is illegal for you to read the Bible in your own language because they don't want people to, to see what it says because when they do, people end up believing what we as Protestants believe. Go figure. But anyhow, uh, Wycliffe argued that the Bible already was translated into French in England. Uh, the official language in the English court was French from 1066 to the 1370s. We're in the 1370s at this point. And English is now, because you have nationalism, which I talked about, where each country's kind of staking its own national identity. So England's saying, why are we speaking French? We're English. And so English comes into its own right during this time. And, and again, you have things like the Canterbury Tale, and you start having English classics, which help solidify English into it, again, its own, uh, we call it Middle English at this point, um, but, but it starts taking its, its own form. Um, and, t and takes the stage. And so, so pretty much he's like, if we already got it in French and now English is, is the new lingua franca for England, then it should be in English as well. Now, a little bit about Wycliffe's ecclesiology, his doctrine of the church. He soon started arguing that the church is not the papacy, bishops, and priests. Because remember, the Catholic church said the church is, you got the church and then you got the people. That you got God as your father and you have the church as your mother. But he's like, where in the Bible does it say that? Where in the Bible is the Pope, bishops, and priests the church, and then everybody else is the laity? Actually, if you look at the Bible, all believers are the church. In fact, that's what the word church means, ecclesia, assembly of, of believers. And so then he says, look at what the Bible says. It says, all believers were eternally elected or predestined to salvation by God. Huh. John Calvin didn't make this up. Wycliffe was saying it too, right? And he said, those who God predestined, once they believe, they are the church, the true church. 
And guess who's not the head of the church, according to the Bible? Not the Pope. More than one time, the Bible says Christ is the head of the church. Hmm, sounds like Protestantism. But let's just be real. It sounds like the Bible. <laughs> that's, what, that's what Protestantism is. He then said, where did the papacy come from? Look at the history. It's of human origin, not divine origin. And in fact, uh, he said, any pope that's wicked that doesn't follow Christ is the Antichrist. That's how he starts off. A couple years later, he's like, no, no, I take that back. They're like, you take it back? Yes, all popes are the Antichrist. Even the good ones, they're all the Antichrist because what does pope mean? Vicar of Christ, in place of Christ. You can't have a head of the church other than Jesus. They are all Antichrist. So again, he is, these are fighting words. You know, these are fighting words. And then he goes after the, the most cherished belief of the Roman Catholic Church, which is transubstantiation. He declares transubstantiation actually to be a heresy. Not just wrong, it is heresy. If you were saying Christ is being re-sacrificed uh, week in and week out, it denies biblical teaching of Christ being sacrificed once and for all. He said, listen, this whole idea of the inner substance changing, the whole thing that Aquinas tried to put in the previous century, he's like, no, it, the, the scripture never says that. Now, because Christ says, this is my body, this is my blood, Wycliffe said he is spiritually present, but you're not consuming him, is what he would say. Because he's like, think about it this way. You're a human. You have a soul. If a bear eats you, the bear's eating your flesh, but he didn't swallow your soul. It's not like the bear's like, oh, that soul added some extra flavor to that man. No, even if he eats your flesh and your bones, your soul's in heaven. So if Christ is spiritually filling the bread and the wine and you consume it, you didn't consume his spirit. In the same way, a bear doesn't eat your soul. So he's like, yeah, Christ is present, but you're not consuming him. Like the Catholics saying, there's no transformation that, that's happening. Um, and so he claimed that the, the Western church abandoned the Eucharist in the 11th century. You abandoned the true uh, sacrament back in the 10 hundreds is what he said. Um, and he said, and guess what? The Eastern Orthodox Church is just as old as the Catholic Church, and they don't believe in transubstantiation. So when the popes come out and say, hey, we're the original church, we're ancient, this goes back to ancient times, you can't just question us on this, he's going to say, what about the Eastern Church? They've never believed in transubstantiation. They're older than you are. And this starts the trend, because Protestant reformers are going to do the same thing. In fact, critics of the Catholic Church will often point to the Eastern Church and how they don't have purgatory, they don't have transubstantiation, and things like that to say that when the Catholic Church makes its claims of its antiquity and its ancienthood, and you need to, to trust it because of that, they're like, nope, because there's your sister church, the Eastern Church, they might even be a little older than you if we're going to be uh, real about this, and they don't have these things. And so um, Calvin, Luther, they're, they're going to make similar observations. Um, anyhow... He also pointed out that the Eastern Church uh, resisted the Western era of, era of celibacy. You know, he's saying priests should build a Mary. One of the qualifications, husband of one wife. Well, since ancient times, you know, celibacy has just been part of it. Really? The Eastern Church still lets their, their priests marry. So, again, you got, you, got, you know, to me that argument's pretty, pretty damning. Um, and as I said, this starts that, that trend. Um, but anyhow... More than, more than anything, though, what is going to get Wycliffe in trouble is his denial of transubstantiation. It makes him dangerous to the Catholic Church. 
Makes him, makes him very dangerous to, to the Catholic Church. And so uh, eventually he will lose the favor of the nobles. The nobles in England uh, eventually are going to turn on him, and then Oxford will fire him and expel him and all of his followers, and he will serve as a parish priest for the rest of his days, about, uh, about three years. Um, and let me see. I must have. I thought I had that in here. Really, what, what you had was, oh, no, no, it comes up on, on the next slide. But yeah, the, the nobles will pull their support of him, so he just becomes a priest for, uh, for three years. Um, he becomes a priest for three years and then he dies. And what he does is he writes his beliefs for a popular level in English. For the average person, he wants them to read his theology in English. But for the scholars, he writes it in Latin. And his writings spread really his ideas, which are the real ideas of what the Bible teaches. He then organized a team to translate the Latin Vulgate into English, and it was finally finished after he died. Now, the, this is the first English Bible that ever existed. It was finished in 1384. It was revised into a smoother edition in 1396. And then these guys hand copy as many copies as they can because there's no printing press yet. And uh, this is going to be the English Bible before the Reformation. It was circulated all throughout England, and this was now spreading the truth. True biblical doctrine was now available uh, for, for people. Wycliffe then decided that we need to spread this with even more than just Bible translations. Oh, and by the way, Bible translations, right? You guys know that the biggest Bible translation organization in the world right now is called the Wycliffe Translation Organization. It's named after him for a good reason. So uh, pretty much uh, in addition to that, he says, all right, here's what we need to do. We need to, um, I'm going to write sermons and then I'm going to have, and each sermon's going to have the gospel in it and it's going to exposit text. And then I'm going to have my followers go out in pairs and they're going to go from village to village to village and they're going to preach these sermons. And then they're going to hand out these tracts that I've written in English so that these guys could hear the word of God. Pretty much he said, look, the Catholic Church says the role of the clergy is to perform the sacraments, and the role of the people is just to show up and watch the sacraments be done. That's why nobody grows in Catholicism usually. He said, no, the role of the clergy is to preach God's word. That's what the Bible says, and the role of the people is to listen and be transformed by God's word. It's the preaching of the gospel that saves them, and it's the continued preaching of the gospel that grows them. That's a Protestant distinctive right there. It's a biblical distinctive, to, to be quite honest. Um, and so that's what they went about doing, and this is going to lead to a lot of followers. Now, Wycliffe dies in peace in 1384. He does not die a martyr's death, but just to show a Roman Catholic hatred of him, 34 years later, authorities dig up his body and burn it. You know, oh, here's his grave. Let's take his bones, set them on fire, and they throw them in the Swift River. Um, and, and Protestants to this day and the Protestant, like Luther and, and, and Calvin, all of them even said he was the morning star of the Reformation. Um, so before the Reformation happened, he was that first glimpse that it was, it was coming. Now, his followers were called Lollards. Uh, this was a pejorative slur that meant mumblers. Who are these mumblers? You know, because they're always out there preaching. And they would also uh, spread their theology in catchy songs like lullabies. Um, and so that's another reason they were called Lollards. But they became the English equivalent to the Waldensians. Same type of beliefs, 
Uh, they spread throughout the 14th century and even at first held seats in parliament. They made it to the highest levels of government. They, were, they denounced the papacy. They denounced celibacy of priests. They denounced transubstantiation. They said prayers for the dead is unbiblical. They said pilgrimages. There's nothing in the Bible about pilgrimages. And they said bishops should not hold political offices. Uh, so they were pushing for a separation of church and state, uh, which I would say is an early version of a Baptist distinctive, because uh, that's one thing we Baptists hold. But things are going to turn against them, because in 1399, a political revolution happens, and it enthroned the Lancaster dynasty um, in the person of Henry IV. His reign dates are 1399 to 1413, and his goal was to get back on the good side of the church. The Hundred Years' War is over by this point. Um, the, the popes are back in Rome at this point. So, you know, there's no good reason for them in his mind to be um, against the popes, and so he wanted to gain the favor of the church, and he passes a law that now made it legal to burn heretics in England, um, and it was directed specifically at the Lollards. So they do get persecuted, and it becomes fiercer under his son, Henry V, who reigns from 1413 to 1422. And he's going to go after the Lollards because his chief opponent, you may know this uh, from your world history classes when you were a kid, but you had kings of England and then you had parliament. And often the kings and parliament would always go back and forth fighting. That's why in the English Civil War, parliament actually went to war with the king, Charles I, and chopped off his head. You know, so you have that kind of stuff. And then as America, we look at that like, gosh, the beginning of revolution, you know, uh, and, and we, we learned a lot from the English Civil War, and 100 years later, a little more than 100 years later, we fought our own against them. But uh, So you always had conflict between uh, parliament members and kings, and this particular king's big opponent, opponent in parliament was a Lollard, John uh, Oldcastle. And so, uh, so pretty much the king's like, here's how I'm going to get rid of them. This has been declared heresy by the church. I'm now good with the church. We're going to use the church courts to convict him of Wycliffe's heresy, and then we could use the civilian courts or the civil courts to sentence him to death. So Oldcastle knew this was going to happen. He was going to get killed, so he escaped. And then he organized a conspiracy amongst the Lollards to kidnap the king in 1414. Now, had it worked, history would have turned out different. But the king found out about the plot and crushed it. And so Oldcastle got arrested. He was going to be executed. Somehow he escaped again. The guy was an escape artist. I don't know how he did it, but he did. But they catch him three years later in 1417, and at this point they execute him. And so once this becomes known, right? Once the Lollard plot is, is made known, it destroyed all support from the nobles and the law, that the Lollards once enjoyed. You know, the nobles used to say, hey, they're not that bad. But it's like, really? These guys now tried to capture the king? I'm going to give another Star Wars analogy because I'm a nerd, as I said. You know, when the emperor, <laughs> I'm sorry if you've never seen Star Wars, but when the, when the emperor lies and convinces the Senate that the Jedi tried to kill him, then everybody's okay hunting down the Jedi after this. Same type of thing. When it becomes known that the Lollards tried to kidnap and possibly kill the king, okay, those Lollards enjoy no support after this, and they're now going to only be commoners. They got to go underground because they're being hunted down, and it was mainly just a, a, a group of common folk. Um, they had no 
access to the levers of power anymore. Um, and so usually what would happen is the Lollards were secret. They would attend Catholic church, but at home, parents would teach their kids biblical truth because they had English Bibles and they had these tracts from Wycliffe. Um, and so it's like, hey, you don't let anybody know what you really believe, but this is what we believe. And when I die, you pass this on to your kids and your kids. And then the thing is, they did this. And the reason we know that is because when the English Reformation happens, when Protestantism comes to England, a little more, so we're talking, this is early 1400s. Yeah, when we're, we're talking about 100 years after this, when the Reformation comes to England, these guys all pop out. We believe it. We've always believed this. And so it turned out they were lollards. There were a lot of them underground. And then they quickly joined the Reformation and the numbers of the Reformation now instantly were more than the Catholics. And that's one reason the, the Reformation in England will succeed because this did pave the way for it. That's why this is more significant than the Waldensians. Um, so they survive again until the Protestant Reformation and they become the first supporters. Um, and then of course, you know, the Lollards already started the practices of translating the Bible into English. Um, eventually this is going to, this practice is going to continue with Tyndale. And then eventually we get to the Geneva Bible, then the King James Bible, but that's all Reformation stuff. That's church history part two. Can't get ahead of myself. So the last one I'm going to talk about are the Hussites. The Hussites, and then we will be done with this course. They are named after Jan Hus of Bohemia. If you look on a map for Bohemia, you won't find it, but you will find the Czech Republic. That's where Bohemia is. Okay, so just think of uh, the western half of Czechoslovakia. Well, it's not Czechoslovakia anymore. They split up, and so now you have Czech and Slovakia. So this is the Czech part. That's where, that's where Bohemia was. Um, well, Wycliffe was alive. A little bit of backstory. When Wycliffe was still alive, the king of England married the sister of the king of Bohemia. So that made a close relationship between England and Bohemia. And what happened is they started exchanging scholars. And what happened is some people from Bohemia went to Oxford and came across Wycliffe as a teacher and came across his tracts and his writings uh, as it was spreading out. So then they took his writings back to Bohemia. And these writings then made their way to the University of Prague, which was Bohemia's big university. And the soil to receive such writings was already prepared because there was already a popular reform movement in Bohemia. Remember, everybody's pushing back against Catholic corruption at this time. And so when you have somebody in England calling out that corruption, they're like, well, let me see what he wrote. Let's, let's see what, what he has there. And the papacy could not discredit any of this stuff because they were still in the gutter of the Great Schism. You had three popes all saying they're the real pope. And so everybody's like, hey, you can't look at the pope. No, the pope can't say don't read these. And so the people in the University of Prague start reading them. And in steps, one of the most brilliant professors and teachers, Jan Hus, his life dates, uh, 1372 to 1415. He was first a preacher in the Bethlehem Chapel of Prague in 1402, but then he becomes the rector of Prague. That's the head of that prestigious university. Uh, and he, he gets that position in 1409. So he gets his hands on Wycliffe's writings and reads them. He's like, this guy's spot on. This guy's right. Everything he's saying, it's right here in the Bible. I'm seeing it with my own eyes. Um, and so it's interesting. Who starts writing things in Bohemian? And uh, it, actually, some of it is verbatim to what Wycliffe wrote. So he, he definitely uh, you know, bought and accepted what he said. Now, at first, he's not going to be as harsh or as radical in his criticisms of Catholicism as Wycliffe was, but it will grow. 
At first, he accepted transubstantiation. Um, you know, at first, his motivation was nationalistic, that, that we're Bohemian, we're technically under the authority of the Holy Roman Empire, which is German, we don't like that, and the popes always support them. You know, so, so they were critical of the Roman Church for that reason. But the more he's swimming in Wycliffe's writings, the more he starts opposing everything that uh, that the catholics are pushing in 1411 he's like indulgences there's no such thing as purgatory why are why is the church selling indulgences and he's like look at what the bible says it says when you believe on jesus you are completely forgiven everybody who believes and repents is forgiven of all sins as far as the east is from the west god remembers your sins no more why is the church teaching God does remember your sins and therefore you have to burn it off in purgatory unless you give money to the church and then that gets years off purgatory? He's like, no, if Jesus forgives all of your sins, indulgences make no sense. They're useless. And then he starts thinking, and, and again, what is purgatory? So he starts pushing this true doctrine. Well, he makes a very important enemy because remember, you have popes fighting each other and uh, Pope John the 23rd, 1410 to 1415 are his pope dates. He was selling indulgences to gain money to wage his war against a rival pope. And so when Jan Hu says indulgences are wrong, this pope is like, get rid of them. This guy is, is a threat. So John excommunicates Hus, and he says, I will put all of Prague under interdict, meaning none of you will get any sacraments. And so Hus is like, I don't want Prague to suffer because of me. So he resigns his position as rector of the university, and he leaves. He leaves Prague and moves to uh, southern Bohemia. And once he was there, he was protected by friendly nobles, and there he starts writing more and more. And just like what Wycliffe's writings do in England, his writings writings are going to do in Bohemia, okay? And so those who once supported... Now, by the way, when he was only calling for moral reform, a lot of people supported him. Once he started questioning Catholic doctrine, bishops pulled back from him, okay? But regular folks and scholars will look at what he says, and he will have quite, quite a bit of support. Um, and so this is going to lead, lead to two different groups in Bohemia, two parties. You have the Catholics and you have the Hussites, Hussites named after Jan Hus. Now, at first they were called the Wycliffeites. Interesting, they knew where these doctrines were coming from. So stupid Wycliffeites. But eventually uh, they were called the Hussites. And his doctrine is, is going to bring trouble. And then the trouble that comes out of this is going to lead to open war, which is kind of interesting to talk about. So Hus, like Wycliffe, like the Waldensians, like the Petrobrusians, argued that the church is not the pope, bishops and priests, the church is all believers, ele the elect from all ages. He says, look at what the Bible says, Ephesians 1, we were predestined by God out of his free grace. Who's the head of the church? Not the Pope, but Jesus Christ. Popes, he said, were fallible. And he starts pointing out all the times they've been wrong throughout history. Um, he, like Wycliffe then says, and also look at the Eastern church. They got no Pope. They don't have purgatory and, and all that kind of stuff, right? He then also argued that Christians must not follow or obey unworthy clergy. And like Wycliffe, he said, if you have corrupt bishops and priests, the state should come in and arrest them. They should force the church to reform if the church will not reform itself. Um, and then like Wycliffe, Huss said, people will be changed through preaching. It's not about watching sacraments. It's about hearing the word of God. That's the heart of ordained ministry. Well, traditional Catholics, 
this is all heresy to them. And so there's going to be a lot of turmoil. The Hussites and Catholics start fighting in the streets over this stuff. And so I mentioned multiple lessons ago, you had the Council of Constance. It met in 1414 to try to really work out this great schism between the popes. Um, and they were trying to push this idea of having ultimate authority in a council, the conciliar uh, reformation. And I mentioned that and how it failed, but they were trying to make it work here. And at the Council of Constance, not only did they have to figure out what to do about the popes, they also had to address the problems going on in Bohemia, what they called the Bohemian turmoil. And so they summoned Hus. They said, you will appear before our council. Hus is like, if I show up, they're going to kill me. I already know it. And so he wasn't going to show up. But the Holy Roman Emperor himself, uh, um, I always say his name wrong, Emperor uh, Sig Sigismund, I don't know why there's an extra eye in there, but Sigismund, uh, 1410 to 1437, he says, Hus, I promise you, by my authority as emperor, you have safe passage. No harm will come to you. So then Hus thought, all right, well, the emperor said, I'll be okay. So I'll go there and I will represent what I've been writing there. Well, before he gets there, the council already uh, decided that we don't care what the emperor says. We're going to arrest him. We're going to kill him. And the emperor's there. We're here. And we'll just say we're sorry later. So he shows up. They throw him in prison. They starve him. They beat him. And, and they kept him in there for months. He started, like, bleeding from the mouth, had all sorts of health issues because of it. Um, and so that's happening. They're thinking that this will cause the problem in Bohemia. Nope, it gets worse. The Hussites in Prague started giving communion to uh, the laity. Now, it's interesting. The Roman church at this time said only priests could take the Lord's Supper. The laity has to watch. And they're like, the Bible tells us all to take the Lord's Supper. So they start giving it to the laity. And boy, that causes more controversy. So they're like, all right, we really got to end this thing. So in June of 1415, the church authorities brought, bring the very ill Jan Hus before the council. They will not let him open his mouth to defend himself. They just bullied him for three days, said, renounce your views. He would not renounce them. So they condemned him and they deposed him, or the technical word is they defrocked him as a priest. And, and they did it in a humiliating way. They had him show up in his priest clothes. They ripped off all the vestments in front of everybody. Then they put a red demon hat on, like a hat that had demon faces on it, and pretty much said, we now commit, we commit your soul to the devil. We're giving you over to the devil. That is to whom you belong. Um, and then he replied, you commit me to the devil, but I commit myself to our most gracious Jesus. So you could commit, your words mean nothing. What really matters is my soul is committed to my king, to the gracious Lord Jesus. So then the council says we've condemned him. They hand him over to the Holy Roman Emperor. Sigismund, the one who promised him safety. Now, Sigismund, if he did what was right, would say, no, I promised him safety. Instead, he said, well, they condemned him, so he let his soldiers kill him. And so, and up to the point he was going to die, they gave him one last chance to recant. But his last words were, quote, I shall die with joy today in, faith, in the faith of the gospel which I have preached, end quote. And then they killed him. Now, if the church thought this was going to go away, because every other time they do this, they get away with it. They were wrong this time. His martyrdom 
<laughs> did not work out. Bohemia declared him a martyr, a national hero. And they were enraged that their emperor, the Germanic Holy Roman Emperor, lied and went back on his word and killed Jan Hus. And so this is just festering. Well, then the king of Bohemia dies, right? Oh, actually, let me, I don't want to get ahead of myself. 1416, it's going to grow because Jan Hus's most prominent disciple, Jerome of Prague, also by order of the emperor, gets burned at the stake. And he also has a glorious death. Like he says things that are even kind of cooler than what Jan Hus said. And the people who were there to watch him get executed started weeping. They're like, this was a righteous man. And now we got blood on our hands. And, and, and they, they were very upset. And so they're now ready to explode. They're like, that, that stinking emperor. Okay, well, what's going to happen in 1419 is the king of Bohemia dies. His brother was Emperor Sigismund of the Holy Roman Empire. So now the emperor, who is the most hated man in Bohemia, is now saying, well, now I'm the king of Bohemia. Uh, king of Bohemia. And at this point, they're like, no stinking way. And so it turns into full-on war. They took up arms and attacked the emperor. So Pope Martin of the Catholic Church then says, oh, this is perfect. Okay, killing the heretics didn't work. Uh, killing the leaders of the heresy didn't work. So we will declare a crusade like they've been doing since Pope Innocent III. We declare a crusade against the Hussites. And so now all armies of Europe will get indulgences. They'll get time off purgatory if they go into Bohemia and wipe out the Hussites. Well, it didn't work. Why? Because the Bohemians actually slaughtered them. The two of the greatest generals in all of the Middle Ages history were actually Hussites. And I can't remember their names, but they won every battle. Didn't matter how big the Catholic armies were, when they came into Bohemia, they got crushed. And so, and, and then the people who supported the emperor got crushed. And then these guys took their army and invaded Germany. And so if they wanted to, they could have swept throughout all of Europe, killed the popes, pretty much took out the Catholic Church. So the church is terrified at this point. They're like, oh my gosh, we can't stop these guys. And I'm thinking, like, I hear this, I'm like, darn right, you reap what you sow, you, you know, and I got words, you know, because they've been doing this for centuries. Finally, it backfires, and these Bohemians are about to tear it all down. Um, now, one thing I want to say is there were two parties of Hussites, which will let you know why they will not be able to tear it all down. They won't be able to stay united forever. Um, one party was centered in Prague. They wanted to still be part of the Catholic Church, but they wanted to believe the Protestant things and do the Protestant things, like give communion to the laity, and they wanted to have the gospel preached in Bohemian. The other party wanted to completely break away from the Catholic Church like the Lollards did and like the Waldensians did. They said, look, no, we don't need to be part of a church that teaches transubstantiation, purgatory, indulgences, and all that. Now, the two generals belong to the second party, the more extreme party, the party in this case that was right. And so for 14 years, these two parties were united against the Catholic Church. They kept destroying their crusading armies, and now they started invading the heart of the Holy Roman Empire. For the first time in history, the Catholic Church realized this could be our undoing. There's no stopping these guys. So they're going to agree to negotiate with them. Hey, this has all been a big misunderstanding. Maybe we could talk. Oh, I wish they wouldn't have talked. I wish they would have just carried it all the way, and we wouldn't be talking about, uh, we, we wouldn't be talking about, uh, who knows? Well, God's sovereign. History happened the way it did for a reason. But man, 
the church would have lost. <laughs> they would have lost. But anyhow, um, they sit down at the table. They negotiate with them. And the Catholics said, all right, look, we're going to do something we never do. You could believe what you want. You could be part of the Catholic Church. You could teach this stuff. You could teach Hosea's doctrine. You could give communion to the laity. Just still be part of the Roman Church. We'll accept you. And so the first party's like, well, that's what we want. But the second party's like, no, we refuse. Because even if we're part of the church, and even if the church lets us do our own thing, it's still a church that has a pope, you know, prays to the dead, does these indulgences, and does transubstantiation. We want no part of them. So the Catholics realized at this point that one half of the Hussites has now joined the Catholic Church because they're going to let them get away with their Protestantism. But the other half won't, but now that other half is smaller, right? And so then the church seizes this opportunity and joins with the first side, and in a collective army together, they crush the second party, and they kill those two generals. And so that is what ends up stopping this uh, before it could go to the full level. So um, they crushed the second party in 1434. And so the fate, so this is why there's going to need to be a Protestant Reformation. Had the Hussites succeeded, Luther would have just joined them, <laughs> you know, but they, but they weren't there. He's not even going to know that much about them. Um, so the Bohemians that survived remained in the Catholic Church, but they were able to practice their Hussite traditions. Some of them tried to link with the Eastern Church, but less than 20 years later, Constantinople fell, 1453, so they're like, forget that. Others stayed committed to the ideas of the Second Party. Few of them survived, and some of them joined with the Waldensians, and a group of Waldensian and Bohemians together formed their own church, the United Bohemian Brotherhood, with their own confession. And by 1500, they had 500 congregations in Bohemia and Moravia. And by the way, some of the best missionaries of the Reformation era were actually these Moravians. They didn't even come out of the Reformation. They came out of the Hussites. In fact, John Wesley gets converted because of part of the, the um, impact that the Moravians had on him. The Moravians actually sailed across the Atlantic and came to America to convert Indians. You know, and again, they weren't like Calvinists uh, and Lutherans. They were Hussites. Now, they believed in predestination and all that, because so did Hoos. But again, it's just for, for the technical terminology, these guys were prior to the Reformation. So yeah, some of the second group survived, and some of them were very, uh, very impactful. But the majority of the Hussites remained in the Catholic Church, but even so, there was tensions present. They're like, you know, we know it's just a matter of time before these Catholics betray us and try to force us to go back into everything. And it was true, and it's going to happen... Uh, early 1600s with the defenestration of Prague um, and things heated up to such a point. And again, this is church history too stuff, but it's one of my favorite stories in church history that the, uh, the Hussites outside of, out of a castle tower window, they threw a bishop out of the window to kill him. The only reason he didn't die is he landed in a pile of cow poop. Now the Catholic church said, no, angels guided him down. And the Hussites are like, no, he landed in a pile of dookie. And we have a word for that, defrenstration. I'm like, that is so cool that there is a word for throwing people in a pile of dookie. We, it's a technical word. And, but anyhow, getting ahead of myself here, that's church history two stuff. Um, but anyhow, by the time the Protestant Reformation happens in the 16th century, these Hussites, who are not trusting the Catholics, they're like, you know what, we're going to join this Reformation, and they do. So they become part of the Reformation. And, and I want to uh, 
to uh, kind of end with this, this point about Martin Luther here. Martin Luther, when he starts the Reformation, he debates a lot of Catholics. And the Catholics pull out their best debater, um, Johann Eck, or John Eck. And Eck realizes he's not going to beat Luther in terms of a doctrinal debate, so he tries to beat him in a legal debate. Since Hus was declared a heretic and burned at the stake, if you could get Luther to admit he agrees with Hus, then you could get Luther to agree he's a heretic, and he loses the debate. So Eck is like, do you deny that you believe what Jan Hus believed, that, that you're a Husite? And Martin Luther's like, what's a Husite? Who's, who's Jan Hus? They're like, somebody who believed exactly what you believed. He's like, well, I'm not going to admit anything. And if I don't know, he's like, I'll tell you what, I will come back tomorrow, but tonight I'll stay up all night reading the writings of Jan Hus. And so Martin Luther did. He comes back to the debate the next day. He's like, after reading him, I'm a Husite. You know, (laughs) he's like, this guy got everything right. And then he didn't realize that Eck is like, ah, he admits he's a heretic. And, you know, and that worked against Luther at that time. But eventually, again, all this stuff's going to play into the the Protestant Reformation. But that just shows you the impact of Jan Hus. And even that when Luther actually took the time to read his writings, he's like, this guy was spot on. Okay, so let me conclude this. I, I have a conclusion for this lesson, then a conclusion for the course, and then we're done. Conclusion for this lesson. There's always been dissenting movements to the ancient institutional church. Some were heretical, and they continued Gnosticism, but as we've seen in this lesson, a lot of them were biblical. And it's worth noting then, that if the one thing I want you to walk away from this with is that Protestant doctrine is not unique to Protestantism. In fact, what history shows us is whenever a group used sola scriptura as their final rule and authority, and they then applied it to the church's traditions, they almost always ended up with Protestant doctrine. And I want you to think about the significance of that. This happened in a diverse set of lands in multiple languages, France, Italy, Bohemia, England, German. These cultures are all very different. They speak very different languages. This is across various centuries, not all at the same time. And yet every time somebody says, let's look at what the Bible says and question tradition with it, they end up believing exactly what we believe. Um, They end up believing exactly what the Protestants later are going to believe. And I bring this up because this is a powerful defense against the claims of, of liberals and even claims of the Roman Catholic Church. See, the Catholic Church says, ah, this stuff was all invented by Luther. No, it wasn't. It's biblical. And there's a lot of examples of people before Luther who, when they read the Bible, they came to the same conclusions. But you also have these postmodern liberals that say, well, Reformation doctrine was just a product of their culture. It wasn't a recovery of what the Bible says. Nobody knows what the Bible really means. Yet, you look before the Protestant Reformation, and again, Every group, regardless of the language, that started with sola scriptura and judged the church's traditions by it, they all ended up with the same doctrine. So that, that kills that. It doesn't matter their language. It doesn't matter their, their location. So what Protestants believe really is biblical Christianity. It's not just a, a historic byproduct of the 1500s that we happen to think is true and we're saying, no, this is true Christianity. No, it is. Because people who who start with Sola Scriptura, they always end up here. Okay, now these movements we talked about today, none of them could claim success like the Reformation, um, and and there's a lot of reasons for it. And so I end with the question, why did the Reformation succeed while these efforts did not? 
And what I would say is if you go home and think about it, I've given you enough information in this course to figure it out. Okay, when you, when you think of the Renaissance, when you think of the printing press, when you think of nationalism, when you think of the decline of the papacy and great schism and all that kind of stuff, right? It was too early for these guys. But by the time this all happens with Luther, you have German nobles saying, don't care what the Pope says, don't care what the emperor says, we're going to protect this guy. You have a printing press that will get his stuff all over Europe in mass production. Uh, so you have uh, politicians protecting these guys. You have the, the spread of their language. You already have an example of people who took up the sword against the church and won. By the time you get to the 1500s, the Roman Catholic Church will not be able to stop this. It's too late for them. And for that, I thank God. Um, and so if you wanted to, uh, to go back and, you know, think more carefully through it, you'll probably be able to come up with 10 reasons why the Protestant Reformation succeeded, whereas the other ones didn't. So let me, uh, let me wrap it all up. We've discussed a lot in this course, history, theology, heresy, politics. Uh, we started, honestly, like in what, 500 BC, you know, and came to 1500, uh, AD 1500. In Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said he would build his church. Hopefully you've seen that in this uh, with its variety. Um, we're, we're ending right at the eve of the Reformation, 1500. Uh, we've seen what Philip Schaff has pointed out, that whenever God builds a church, the devil builds a chapel next door. A lot of what we talked about was that chapel. Um, just transubstantiation, things like that, burning people at the stake, crusades. That's not the church of God. But always in the midst of it, you had people like Bernard of Clairvaux. You had the Nicholas of Lyra and all these, these great theologians that their doctrine for the most part was right. And you did have faithful believers in the midst of this. And you had faithful dissenting groups all throughout this to where the church always had its, its true representatives, even in the midst of its, its false representatives. So we have seen the beautiful bride of Christ, as small as she was at some points, moving along through history despite large-scale apostasy. And so hopefully this was all informative and it will help you make sense out of heresies in our own day and that you better know where like things came from, why things are the way they are today and, and throughout history. That's the whole point of studying history. Um, hopefully we realize nothing new is under the sun. And my prayer is that the Lord ends church history, not with a course, but with the exclamation point of him coming on the clouds. Because at that point, Church history, at least on this side of eternity, is done. And uh, we're in store for something a lot 